today on the first ever video episode of Brandon at Random Reviews, I dive back into the well of Marvel movies, starting with Captain America Civil War from 2016. And I originally recorded this episode as a two-movie episode, and when I recorded it, the final cut was two and a half hours long, so I split it, and now I'm re-recording intros and outros because I didn't want it to be confusing, me talking about both movies and things like that. So, enjoy the show. everyone welcome to brandon at random reviews i am your host brandon griffiths thank you for stopping by i do appreciate it today on the show like i said captain america civil war released on may 6th 2016 based on the marvel crossover comic book series civil war by mark millar i think it's millar m-i-l-l-a-r i i want to say that's correct okay so Directed by Anthony and Joe Russo, they directed Captain America the Winter Soldier, which is another solid MCU movie. It's the previous, you know, like the second Captain America movie. And they also did Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame. And I, like many people, think that Infinity War is a superior movie, but I would say Endgame is a very satisfying conclusion, despite not being as good of a movie as... Infinity War. And so they also did this movie called The Gray Man, previously covered on this podcast. And I really enjoy Gray Man. I think it's a very fucking good movie. And it it kept my attention. It had a lot of good action in it. And it had a lot of actors that I like, even though the the cast was not very deep. It's it was pretty uh mediocre from that standpoint. But you know, essentially, I liked that one, and a lot of people say that they thought that movie was shit, and I'm like what are you talking about? Like, how is this movie shit, you know? So, then we have writers, Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, and this is a writing duo. They work together almost exclusively. And they did the Chronicles of Narnia movies, which I never got into. I never watched. I didn't like the first book. And, because it was just fucking weird. Like, what? I don't fucking know. I just don't. I don't. I'm not a big fan. And so they made, I think, most or all of those movies. They wrote all of them. And then they also did Captain America, the first Avenger, which is the first Captain America movie. And that one's solid. It actually, the first time I watched it, I wasn't as big of a fan of it. And then when I went back and rewatched it, I was like, actually, you know, this is pretty solid. Like, they did a pretty decent job with this movie. And then they did Thor, the Dark World, which is regarded by many to be one of the worst MCU movies ever. It's just, there's a lot of stupid shit in it, and, you know, most people just don't give a shit about what goes on in that movie. It's not very compelling. And they also wrote The Gray Man, and, my God, just, 
ignore my pop filter bouncing up and down because I keep bumping it with my arm and I couldn't figure out a better way to do this. So for the producers, we have just Kevin Feige and he is the president of Marvel Studios and the primary producer of the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. For the score, we have composer Henry Jackman, who I do not believe is related at all to Hugh Jackman, which is a crying shame. And he also he uh, composed Kong Skull Island score, and I like that. That's a good popcorn movie. Like it's not Oscar material, but who gives a shit about that? And I, I really just I think it's a good time. I think it's a fun movie. He also did X Men First Class, which is a good. I don't know if you'd call that like a reboot of the X-Men franchise, but essentially it's a big prequel to the X-Men franchise. And I really like the X-Men movies. I think those newer, I liked Days of Future Past for the newer ones, but the first two X-Men movies are legitimately like some of the better comic book movies that have ever been made, in my opinion. So then we have Wreck-It Ralph, and I liked that one. I think I saw it in theaters, and I haven't seen it since, but it was a good time. It's a Pixar movie, so it's well-written, well-produced, and all that stuff. He did Puss in Boots, and I just don't know. I don't know why I put so many fucking movies down for this guy, but I, I guess I just wanted to demonstrate how much stuff he had done. Um, so he also did... Um, Captain Phillips with Tom Hanks, and that one's pretty solid. It has, to me, it has more memorable moments in it than actually, you know, like an actual good movie. It's not, it's, it's not as good of a movie as its individual memorable scenes are, and that's just, that is what it is. It's just how I feel about it. So then we have, last but not least, of the selected movies for Henry Jackman, uh, composer, he did the score for Kick-Ass, and that one I liked a lot when it first came out. I watched it again recently. I watched the first one and the second one. Not very good movies. Not I don't think they're anything special, honestly. So for the cast, I won't be going through any of the filmographies of any of these actors because I basically decided I would list more actors and not do filmographies just to make sure I covered everybody because this is such a deep cast and there are so fucking many good actors in this. So first, we have Chris Evans, who plays Steve Rogers slash Captain America. Then we have Robert Downey Jr., who plays Tony Stark slash Iron Man. We have Scarlett Johansson, who I have noted here is hot, and she plays Natasha Romanoff slash Black Widow, they really don't call her Black Widow too much. I mean, the name of her solo movie was Black Widow, but for the most part, they don't fucking call her Black Widow. They just call her Natasha or Nat or whatever. Sebastian Stan plays Bucky Barnes slash the Winter Soldier. Anthony Mackie plays Sam Wilson slash the Falcon. Don Cheadle plays James Rhodey Rhodes slash War Machine, and War Machine is, is essentially just a militaristic Iron Man. It's like he's funded by the military, and it, it's it, he's basically Iron Man, just without Tony. Jeremy Renner plays Clint Barton slash Hawkeye. 
Chadwick Boseman plays T'Challa slash Black Panther. Paul Bettany plays Vision. Elizabeth Olsen, who I have noted here, is also hot. And she plays Wanda Maximoff slash the Scarlet Witch. And that's another one that they don't really call her the Scarlet Witch in these movies for the most part. Paul Rudd plays Scott Lang slash Ant-Man. Tom Holland plays Peter Parker slash Spider-Man. And let's see, for casting notes, there are surprisingly no casting notes worth mentioning in this movie. Tom Holland was a relative unknown actor at the time of being chosen to play Spider-Man, and Chadwick Boseman seemingly was too perfect not to cast as Black Panther. I'm sure people could dig up more info on this stuff, but I I didn't feel like anything really was readily available through my usual channels, and I just kind of gave up. I, I... I get really weary going into the the deeper IMDb trivia sections where there's just endless amounts of shit that nobody cares about and there's obviously nothing to like verify anything. So, yeah. Okay, so for a plot synopsis, we have political involvement in the Avengers' affairs causes a rift between Captain America and Iron Man forcing multiple heroes to take sides and face off with one another. All right, so the tagline is just, Divided we fall. Not bad. All right, guys, let's just dive right into this fucking movie. Hold on just a second. Okay. I really want to start off by saying that I apologize for the way I refer to different superhero characters in this movie. Usually, my rule is, for example, I say Tony if it's Tony Stark not in his Iron Man suit. Then, I call him Iron Man when he is in the suit. But, this varies, and some people it's easier to refer to by their regular name or their superhero name on a case-by-case basis, essentially. So, for instance... I'm pretty sure Elizabeth Olsen's character Wanda is never referred to as the Scarlet Witch as she is in the comics, at least in this movie. So I always call her Wanda, and she doesn't really suit up in a traditional sense, so it's easier that way. So the movie does this thing with huge block letters in the middle of the screen to denote a year or location to the viewer, and I really like this stylistic choice, mostly for the fact that it calls so much attention to itself, which is way better than the more subtle ways of doing this, where this sort of thing might be denoted at the bottom corner of the screen, and I often miss what it says, and I don't realize that we changed locations or years or whatever. So, we open the movie in 1991 and see this desolate snowscape Some kind of military compound is being entered by a man in uniform who finds Bucky Barnes, a.k.a. the Winter Soldier, as played by Sebastian Stan. They're training and educating Bucky, and it flashes, and we see what we assume to be him on a dark road in the country. He's on a motorcycle, and he causes an oncoming car to careen off the road and crash, and then goes back, but it flashes back to the compound where he is, where we were originally at, before we see what actually happened. God, I fucking love... So, after that happens, we get the Marvel title card thing, and it just has the flipping comic book pages, and it's so fucking cool. It kicks so much ass, and it's 
it's a great idea. I really love it. I don't like when they redid it to feature the actual MCU versions of the characters because I feel like it lost something. It was like they weren't staying connected to the comics as much, and that bugged me. So after the MCU card shows, we go to what I assume is present-day Lagos and see Wanda as played by Elizabeth Olsen, and she's staking out an area and feeding back information to Steve, played by Chris Evans, presumably through an earpiece. I mean, it's kind of cool how they did it in these movies where it's just kind of like a given that they all have earpieces in and they're just talking to each other like they're standing right next to one another, despite being however far away from one another. So after, uh, as Steve talks, uh, Nasha, Nasha, Natasha, as played by Scarlett Johansson, chimes in and tells Wanda that she needs to develop her awareness and not simply think, I can move things with my mind. And, you know, she can't use that as all preparation she needs. She needs to to do things, even though it is really all she fucking needs. Like, that's all she needs as a power. It's like, essentially, it's like, get the fuck out of her way, and that's it, you know? I gotta stop saying, yeah, no. But anyway, already, I just love how serious the tone of this movie is. It's just over four minutes in, but this movie doesn't have the same joke-heavy nature of post-Endgame Marvel films like Thor Love and Thunder, and I'm thankful for that because I don't like Thor Love and Thunder, and for that matter, actually, even though it was before Endgame, I didn't really care for Thor Ragnarok either. It was basically in the same boat for me. So Sam, played by Anthony Mackie, also chimes in and sends in a drone to do some reconnaissance. And the team opts to move in where, like when they realize the enemies are not looking to attack the police or whatever, but they have something else planned. The bad guys converge on a building and start shooting gas canisters inside. And the team arrives and makes their move to start taking out the hostiles. Wanda is making what I guess I would describe as a giant dust tornado, but I'm not really sure what happened with that whole thing because it seems like it went fucking nowhere. I mean, it's like she makes she makes it, and it seems to do practically fucking nothing to anybody despite being seemingly powerful. And the leader of the bad guys fights Natasha, and he seemingly gets the best of her and manages to lock her in a van with a grenade a live grenade. It's interesting watching these guys use their different powers or skill sets to attack, although I maintain Wanda could literally just do all of this shit on her own and not be bogged down with other people or the need to do teamwork. So Steve tracks down this villain Crossbones to this area, and uh, basically they're just in town and shit's about to go down. He throws Steve into a table and then Natasha shows up and starts fighting the bad guys and winds up in a standoff with one of them after she gets a pistol and Sam uses his drone Red Wing to save her. 
Cap is really duking it out with Crossbones, and he gets his mask off, and Cap wants to know who his buyers are. And Crossbone gets Cap distracted by telling him a story about something Bucky said to him, and he reveals that he's about to detonate an explosive in hopes of killing both of them. Wanda shows up and is able to project a force field to contain the blast of the explosive, but when she throws it in the air to release it, it explodes and it destroys a large portion of a building, presumably killing a decent amount of people and endangering others, all innocent people, presumably. So now we get this scene with a young Tony Stark and his parents, who I must note appear to be alive and well, so one might assume that this is in the past. His mom is playing a grand piano and singing like many of us casually do, especially while our children are napping on a couch three feet away. I mean, he's not like a six-year-old, I'll give you that, but it's like, why are you fucking playing the piano if he's like trying to sleep? So they digitally altered Robert Downey Jr. to look younger in this scene, and it honestly looks pretty good in my opinion, and it's explained that Tony is home for Christmas from, I guess, college. There's very noticeable tension between Tony and his father, Howard. Tony tells Howard he loves him, and he gets no response from Howard at all, and it seems like a really fucking shitty way to leave things. Hopefully something awful doesn't happen to them shortly after this interaction. Then modern day Tony shows up as the scene freeze frames and he reveals that this is merely a fantasy and is not really the way things went down, but we don't really ever get to find out how things went down with him and his parents that day. It's revealed that this moment was fabricated and shown during Tony's speech at a college, and Tony shares that he has approved funding for grants for the students and their projects, and they're all very excited. And I kind of wish they didn't do it like this. Why not just make the scene a real flashback and have that be shown as like what Tony was thinking about before going on stage? I don't... I'm not a fan of that. I, I, It's a small gripe, but it's, it's a gripe nonetheless. So what does this audience give a shit about any of that stuff that happened to Tony outside of the fact that he was probably their age when it happened to him? What do they care otherwise? So then the teleprompter says that Tony is supposed to introduce Pepper Potts as the head of the foundation, but it's made clear that she's not there because her and Tony are on the outs I feel compelled to say this. Overall, I, I just... I, I love the MCU leading up to and including Avengers Endgame, but one of the most annoying minor arcs is this whole love on the rocks thing between Tony and Pepper. It doesn't really get developed enough to generate an emotional reaction, and it seems like it was simply invented because maybe Gwyneth Paltrow didn't want to appear in some of the movies or something. I don't know. I don't know if that's true, but it seems like a more logical explanation. And then, unless I'm remembering something wrong, it seems like it's just not a problem anymore in later movies with no real explanation that I can remember. They could have just written these movies and not included her at all in the story in lieu of having some throwaway, poorly executed conflict between her and Tony that ends up just not being an issue at all. Anywho, Tony leaves the TED Talk and comes 
out and talks with his with this lady while waiting for an elevator in this hallway with nobody else in it. And she suggests that Tony's donations are a product of guilt. She reveals to Tony that he killed her son, presumably by accident, and calls him selfish and parades around like he's doing it for the people. And Tony obviously takes this very much to heart. It really bothers him. We see footage on CNN about people, Captain America and company, accidentally killed when they were in Nigeria, which is where Lagos is, by the way, I guess. I didn't look that up, but pretty sure that's what that means. Uh, Wanda gets called out by one of the talking heads on CNN saying she had no right to operate there and the team was acting recklessly. Cap comes in to comfort Wanda, who is watching TV in her bedroom, and Vision just walks through the fucking wall, and Wanda is annoyed with him for doing this, and he clearly doesn't get why it's a problem. Like, it's a little fucking unnerving to have somebody just wander through your wall. You're typically expecting them to come through a fucking door. But we do get the beginnings of Wanda and Vision's romantic involvement in this movie, and it's definitely an interesting power couple to watch. Vision tells Steve that Tony has arrived with the Secretary of State Thunderbolt Ross, played by William Hurt, and he's reprising his character from The Incredible Hulk with Edward Norton. He was Edward Norton played the Hulk. And man, I wish they could go back in time and recast Mark Ruffalo in Edward Norton's place in that movie. It would have been, I love Edward Norton, don't get me wrong, but the movie is just okay, and it feels exceptionally meaningless since he didn't go on to portray the character in any other movies, despite the movie still being part of the MCU. So Ross, Ross's real first name, I wanted to note this because I found it really fucking interesting, is Thaddeus. So I totally understand why he opted for the Thunderbolt moniker. Ross paints an ugly picture of what our heroes have become in the eyes of the public and how they're inherently dangerous and their powers are currently unchecked. He shows them footage from the climaxes of many prior movies showing destruction on a massive scale and how countless casualties can be linked back to them despite the fact that they were doing these things to be good and take down bad guys. Ross pitches the Sokovia Accords, which would restrict and regulate the heroes and require government approval in order to respond to any situation that might come up for the the heroes if they're out and about and they see something go on. I mean, they're supposed to reach out and make sure it's okay. When Natasha asks what will happen if any of them don't agree to these new rules, Ross tells them that they will be forced to retire. Obviously, the room is divided. Some are for and others are against this proposed setup. And I have to say, although I am Team Iron Man on a fundamental level, I don't support this concept of forcing superheroes to be controlled by the government. Like, it just doesn't work. And I'll give an example. I know this is DC, but just hear me out. Imagine if Superman hears a call for help, or sees some shit going down in the moment, which he frequently does, a lot of times, it's not like somebody else comes to tell him. Usually, he's the one that recognizes that something problematic is happening. And so, I mean, imagine if if he had that happen, and he had to call the government 
for approval after explaining the situation or worse yet have them be like um yeah could you just you know we'll get back to you you know like we'll we'll let you know what we what we decide and then by the time he gets the okay it's too fucking late and that's that's all that fucking happens so meanwhile Somewhere in the desolate post-apocalyptic hellscape known as Cleveland, a man sitting at a desk looks outside and sees a man who approaches his door, claiming that he hit his car. When he opens the door, the strange man we later find out is named Zemo, attacks him and begins looking through his things, and you don't really know what he's trying to find at all. It's still pretty early on in this movie. Zemo has the man hanging upside down by his feet, with his head dangling halfway into a tub of water, and I think it was ice too. Zemo talks a bit about Hydra, which is an evil organization within the Marvel Universe, featured prominently in Captain America the Winter Soldier. The man is uncooperative when Zemo asks him about a date in 1991 he wants to know about. So the man says, Hail Hydra, and Zemo just leaves him to drown, basically. I mean, he's, he's in this fucking tub, and he's close to drowning as is, but basically, like, he's at a level, I think, where it's, like, the only thing that's keeping him alive is that he is alive, and he's able to, like, tense up and bring his head out of the water, but you can only do that for so fucking long. So, back with our heroes, they're arguing about the concept of regulation. Sam seems mostly concerned with where it will end, and if they're going to start being low-jacked like a bunch of common criminals. To be fair, it's probably reasonable to assume that their regulations would escalate in due time, so Sam isn't really out of line by suggesting this in my mind. But at the same time, it's probably looked at it like as an extreme example at the time, and I don't even think it really is. I think that they could totally low-jack them. So Rhodey, played by Don Cheadle, argues that over a hundred countries are in favor of the initiative and that that should factor into the way they feel about it. Vision points out that since Iron Man emerged, like many more dangerous criminals have emerged and a significant increase in world-threatening events has also occurred. He suggests that the very presence of the heroes invites bad guys to surface and challenge them. Tony shows the group a projection of the kid he accidentally killed in Sokovia, who was seemingly an all-around great person and was still very young, and he, he did a lot of great things for his community and all this stuff, and Tony caused his death. He suggests that if the heroes can't take a little bit of boundaries being set up, then they're no better than the bad guys, which is just the kind of bullshit rhetoric people use to coerce people into conformity to go along with these things. Steve suggests that they need to take responsibility, but that those who are pushing this legislation are, are shifting blame and may have their own agendas. I want to make sure... Did I, I said Steve suggested that. He, he suggests they might have their own agendas. That's what he says. So, Natasha suggests that maybe having some sway over what happens to them is better than what may potentially become no control after a number of huge missteps and incidents caused by the team have gone awry. I mean, I guess. It's, I, I worded that weirdly, but basically after they've kind of fucked some stuff up or overstepped their bounds. But here's the problem with that. Aside from, init from initially agreeing with this 
new setup. They seemingly have no other control over what happens next. And basically, they don't have any control because they go into forced retirement if they don't agree. It's basically like, you don't get a say in it. It's happening, you know? So then we see, excuse me, uh, they then we see Peggy Carter's funeral. And her super hot niece, Sharon, speaks, and her speech is one promoting compromise and diplomacy. It's important to note that our heroes are not at each other's throats yet at all, and all of the conversations they have are quiet and cordial as they try and reason and talk through different viewpoints. Steve argues to Natasha that he can't bring himself to sign the agreement after she suggests that it's more important that they stay together than how they stay together. And it's like, yeah, that's a nice way to try and sell it, but I don't buy that this argument is even valid at all. In Vienna, the different nations are coming together to ratify the Sokovia Accords, and Natasha speaks with T'Challa, as played by the late, great Chadwick Boseman. Natasha apologizes to his father, T'Chaka, for what happened in Nigeria. His father is a diplomat from Wakanda, by the way. That's where T'Chaka and T'Challa are from. T'Chaka addresses the assembly, and T'Challa looks outside to see authorities fleeing from an impending explosion, and he yells for everyone to get down as the bomb goes off. The explosion blasts out the windows and kills T'Chaka, but... Seemingly no one else he was in was closest to in the blast, and it, it was basically like it didn't kill anybody else. It just it takes down T'Chaka, and Steve is talking with Sharon a bit, and Sam interrupts them to show them a news show that's reporting that Bucky was seemingly spotted outside the embassy before the explosion and is believed to be responsible for the attack. And it really looks like it's Bucky. I mean, you can see the footage and it's like, I would think that was Bucky if I, if I was looking at that. Natasha talks to Steve on the phone and cautions him to lay low and stay out of it despite how close he is with Bucky and suggests that she won't arrest him if he acts, but it's likely that someone else will. So Sharon gives Steve some info and warns him to be careful and watch his step. Then we see Zemo in a hotel room reading from a book he stole from the guy that he drowned earlier. And Bucky is out on the streets and buys a newspaper from a stand that has a front page headline blaming him for the attack. Cap comes to a rundown apartment looking for Bucky and Sam warns him in his earpiece that the authorities are converging on his location. Bucky appears and Cap asks him if he knows who he is and he says he knows he's Steve from having seen him in a museum. Steve is obviously cautious with him and wants to help him. Bucky says that he was not involved in the attack. The authorities come and break into the apartment with battering rams and grenades, and Cap tries to plead with Bucky to not fight, but he just flees. Cap goes after him, and there's a small skirmish with the authorities in a stairwell, and he continues pursuing Bucky. Bucky winds up on a rooftop, and the Black Panther appears, and they begin going at it with each other. Not like sex going at it, you know, like just regular fighting going at it. The odds are stacked against Bucky as he flees from Black Panther and a hail of gunfire from a helicopter just comes, it's raining down on him basically. 
Cap commandeers a vehicle to pursue Bucky with, and it's like Black Panther jumps on the back of this vehicle, and Steve tries to shake him off, but ultimately he has to call Sam for help. So Bucky steals a motorcycle, and the chase gets really fucking intense with Steve, Bucky, Sam, and Black Panther having a showdown. And just as shit's about to get really exciting, War Machine appears to neutralize the situation by telling everyone to stand down. He says, congratulations, Cap, you're a criminal. And it's revealed that Black Panther is actually T'Challa, and this revelation was about as mind-blowing as the end of an episode of Scooby-Doo, where it's revealed that at the end... That monster they had been dealing with turned out to be literally the only fucking new person they had encountered earlier in the episode. Shocking shit. Vision and Wanda are hanging out at the apartment or whatever this place is supposed to be. It's like a compound. I don't remember what they call it. And they're making food and discussing their feelings on their respective situations. Wanda goes to run to the store and Vision makes it pretty clear that he's been instructed to keep her there in the name of safety in hopes of preventing another incident. Wanda's obviously not a big fan of this and she, I mean, she could take Vision if push came to shove. I'm sure this has been asked before, but why does Wanda get an accent but Natasha doesn't? I'm pretty sure Scarlett Johansson can do a Russian accent, I'm sure there's an explanation. So I googled it, of course, and it turns out that she shed her accent through her training in order to up her spying abilities. So that's actually a legitimate reason. I'm actually a fan of how they explain that away. Then we see Steve, Sam, and T'Challa, and they're on a bus transport, presumably to jail, and Sam tries making conversation, and T'Challa is obviously not in the best place with his father having died, and believing Bucky, friend, a friend of Steve's, to be the cause of the father's death. So Bucky gets transported in a super high-security Pope-mobile type vehicle. It's kind of ridiculous looking. Steve and Sam are brought to Tony by Natasha, and the government agents are total fucking dicks to them. On like, they're on the way to be taken to Tony, and they're just fucking assholes about it. Like, it's ridiculous. So, so Tony sits down one on one with Steve and tries to extend an olive branch to him. Steve asks Tony where Pepper is, and. Tony says that they're taking a break and it, and claims that it's because he's been tied up with avenging and whatnot and he didn't really have the time for her. So Tony tries to work out like a, a compromise with Steve to try and make the new regulations work and lets it slip that he has Vision essentially detaining Wanda under the guise of safety. I mean, I... I so everyone is watching footage of Bucky being interrogated by a mysterious man that I'll just tell you all is all around bad guy Zemo, but he's impersonating some other guy. This, I think it's a doctor. Steve suggests that Bucky was framed for carrying out the attack at the embassy. And Sharon is trying to help piece that notion together with him and Sam. We see a bomb of some sort that appears to be an EMP because it doesn't actually 
it, it kills the power and it doesn't actually explode. So one can only assume that that's what it is. Now that the power's out, okay, Zemo begins reading from his stolen book to the, you know, the guy he drowned. He stole his book and he's using the words in the book to control Bucky or to activate him and turn him back into, you know, his evil winter soldier ways. But I can't remember, what is the logic? I mean, what are the rules surrounding Bucky coming out of being brainwashed? It, brainwashed. it seems like if it's this easy to fucking activate him, it'd be much harder to bring him out of it. The shots in the scene are actually pretty cool since the lights are all out with the exception of one flashing red light and Bucky smashes his way out of his par- his restraints and subsequently out of the glass box containing him. And Steve stops Zemo to ask him who he is and what he wants. And Zemo says he wants to see an empire fall. And you don't really know what the fuck that's all about. So Bucky and Sam are going at it, but Sam is obviously way out of his league, which would be the case if even if he had his suit. I mean, he's not much for powers or anything. So Tony uses an Iron Man gauntlet because he's not in full Iron Man suit. It's just like the the arm or the 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 hand pieces, and he he starts to fight Bucky in this cafeteria area, and he's using this intense an intense flash mechanism to stun Bucky. And then Sharon fights Bucky, and she lasts way fucking longer than had she had any business lasting. Kudos to her for trying. And then there's this moment where Natasha begins fighting Bucky and she at one point is literally straddling the front of Bucky's face while they're fighting. And it would be at this point that I'd just be stoked to be Bucky and I'd never want this quote unquote fight to end. So let's see. Then T'Challa shows up and begins his assault of Bucky and like half the Avengers aren't even really slowing Bucky down, which is insane to me. But I guess they're held back by the fact that they're not just straight up trying to kill him in this process. They want to just stop him. So Bucky makes his way to the roof and gets in a helicopter, but Steve comes before he makes a clean getaway and there's this fucking amazing moment. Steve is grabbing one of the helicopter's legs while still standing on the helipad, and he's using his super strength to try and hold on to the edge of the building and prevent the takeoff. Bucky jerks the helicopter towards Steve, causing the blades to break against the roof, and the helicopter just crashes, and Bucky makes eye contact with Steve before the helicopter falls off the building. Now Zemo is heading to Mother Russia and Bucky is somewhere with his mechanical arm trapped in what appears to be some kind of vice or something. It doesn't look like a vice, but I can only assume that that's what it's supposed to be. So Steve asks Bucky how he knows which Bucky he's talking to and Bucky says Steve's mother's name was Sarah and that Steve used to wear newspapers in his shoes and I don't the the mom mom's name being Sarah thing that's obviously super important to superheroes we've all seen Batman v Superman uh I I just don't understand newspapers in his shoes like maybe because like maybe he didn't have the right size shoes or like he he was wearing them to make himself appear taller before he got the serum or whatever 
I don't know. I'm just guessing. So Bucky tells Steve and Sam how all Zemo had to do was say the right words to activate him as the Winter Soldier. But like, why did it wear off so easily? Can anyone explain that to me at all? Then we flash back to 1991 again, and we see Bucky on motorcycle and causing an unknown car to crash again. He discovers these bags in a metal case in the trunk of the crash car, and we see the tail end of this footage through a surveillance camera. So the bags are revealed to contain what I guess is the same super soldier serum that made Bucky into the Winter Soldier, and we see people lined up in beds in a hospital having the serum administered to them through an IV. Some of the patients have adverse reactions to the serum and react violently. A man comes into a room and attacks Bucky and decidedly defeats him in a fight. Bucky explains to Sam and Steve that about how... There are a bunch of these other Winter Soldiers, and they could potentially cause a catastrophe if they were unleashed. And Ross is grilling Tony about finding the rogue heroes, and he gives him 36 hours to track them down. So Natasha and Tony talk about who they can get into contact with for help, and Tony heads to Queens, which is in New York City, and that's right there in the great state of New York, if you can believe it. Sorry, guys, my throat's fucking dry as shit. So, anyway, it's in it's in New York, if you can believe. Okay, so, sorry, I, I'm, I never do notes like this. I usually just have my phone out when I'm recording audio podcasts. But because you guys are looking at me and I don't want to be like this on my phone, like looking down the entire time, I'm trying to, like, make my eye contact be good, even though, like, One eye's down here, one eye's up here, because I'm a fucking cookie monster. Anywho, so uh, we see Peter Parker, played by Tom Holland, arriving home and finding Tony there with his Aunt May, and a story is made up about Tony giving Peter a grant, and Peter has no idea what's going on at all, and he's just kind of playing along. Tony, of course, flirts with Aunt May because Marissa Tomei is absurdly attractive. The two guys go into Peter's room to talk about to, uh, to talk, and then Tony confronts Peter about his activities as Spider-Man and shows him videos on YouTube of him swinging around, stopping crimes, and saving people. Tony finds where Peter hides his suit, and Peter reveals that he's the only one who knows about his double life at all. He's he hasn't told anybody, not his Aunt May, not his friends. Nobody. So Tony wants to know why he does what he does, and he says he does it because he believes that if you can do something, you can choose not to do it when the bad things go down, and if you do that, those bad things happen because of you, which is the way to look at it, I guess. Tony asks Peter if he has a passport so he can go to Germany with him, And when he says no because he has homework, Tony threatens to tell Aunt May, and Peter webs Tony's hand to the doorknob. So Wanda and Vision sense a disturbance outside the compound, and Vision goes outside to investigate. Wanda summons a kitchen knife from the counter to attack this unknown intruder, and it's revealed to be Hawkeye, played by Jeremy Renner. So Hawkeye wants Wanda to come with him, but Wanda doesn't want to because it's, I mean, she's like, 
afraid. Like she, it's like there's, she's caused too much destruction and she's worried that she might cause more. And Vision fights Hawkeye briefly before Wanda changes her mind and tells Vision that she's leaving. T'Challa finds Natasha waiting at his car and she reveals that she knows someone who knows where Bucky is. And Sam, Steve, and Bucky meet Sharon and then we get a brief but amusing back and forth with Bucky and Sam in the car with Sam refusing to move his front seat up while Sam is in the back and it's, oh no, wait, I, is it, is it Sam? I thought it was Bucky. No, I guess it would be Sam. So Sam refuses to move his seat up for Bucky, who is in the back seat, presumably with very little leg room. And right now I'm sure you're wondering, Brandon, who would you choose between Sharon, Wanda, and Natasha if you were forced to pick? And despite it being a difficult decision, I will say that Wanda wins without hesitation. So Steve Steve makes out with Sharon for a bit, and it's got to be weird to have made out with a person I would love, or I would, I would have to at least assume is at least Sharon's great aunt. And by the way, how are, how are we pronouncing aunt? A-U-N-T. I cannot nail down anything about that. Anyway, I think I've talked about that before, so I won't go on. Like, there's no fucking way Sharon's only one generation away from Peggy Carter with that big of a fucking age gap. I mean, she was in the 40s. She was the same age as her, so it's like no fucking way. So Sam, Steve, and Bucky go to a parking ramp and meet Hawkeye, Wanda, and surprise guest, Ant-Man, played by Paul Stephen Rudd. I credit Mr. Rudd this way because... That was how he was credited in his first movie role that he ever shot, titled Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers. And you may be thinking, but Brandon, Wikipedia and IMDb both say that his first movie was Clueless. And that is technically correct when going by release date, but he shot the Halloween movie before Clueless, and it was ultimately released after. And I want to mention the fact that that Halloween movie that he was in was a steaming sack of shit. And we're lucky it didn't destroy Paul Rudd's career before it even had the chance to really begin. It was the last vestige of the original Halloween franchise before they started to alter the timeline significantly or reboot. And it was fucking awful. And they tried to make it this culmination of some god-awful backstory about Michael Myers behaving the way he does because of some curse that was put on him by a cult. I don't know what to I don't want to say it's worse than a movie like Halloween Resurrection because that one's bad too. They're just two different kinds of bad movies than I'm sure I, I wish I bet you the studios wish they could have changed them or not released them at all. I, I don't know though. I mean they they probably just wish they could unmake them. If I had to choose between those two bad Halloween movies, I would probably pick Halloween Resurrection just because it's dumber and it's it's more enjoyable to watch, whereas Curse of Michael Myers is just blah. It's just, there's not a whole lot. So anywho, the six heroes agree to work together, and there is reference made to the fact that Sam had a cameo in the Ant-Man movie, and I enjoyed the first Ant-Man movie okay, but 
I don't like that it felt like some cheap secondary movie that Marvel didn't want to go all in on for some reason. The airport that they're at is getting evacuated and it's showtime for this big fucking battle between all the heroes. Cap and Iron Man argue with each other and Iron Man stresses that Cap's friend Bucky killed people during his rampage through the city after being activated by Zemo. So Cap says that the whole thing has been orchestrated by Zemo, but Tony and the guys don't want to hear it. So Natasha asks Cap if he really wants to punch his way out of this situation, and Iron Man gets fed up and summons Spider-Man, who swings in and steals Cap's shield. And I do love the bit that they do where Peter basically starts to have a conversation with Iron Man, and Iron Man has to like shut him down, essentially, and just tell him, this is not the time for a chat session, buddy. So Tony says to Cap that he was trying to keep them all from tearing the Avengers apart, and Cap says Tony did that when he signed the Accord. All hell breaks loose as Ant-Man makes himself known, and they all kind of break off to fight their different corresponding heroes from the opposite sides. So the evacuated airport was a cool choice to have this big fight, and I love the bouncing back and forth between the different fights going on. Wanda and Hawkeye kind of kick the shit out of Iron Man, and to be completely honest, from everything I've heard, Wanda is one of the most powerful beings in this universe, so like she could really just make everybody fucking stop, essentially. like The threat of her powers would be more than enough, but whatever. I feel like she could legitimately use her, her powers and defeat anyone, either side, all of them. I mean, that's just what I've heard anyway. So, Spidey's fighting Sam and Bucky, and he's talking way more than the other heroes normally do. And it's it's funny, you know, you get more of the Sam and Bucky dynamic where they're kind of like... they. I think Bucky says, I hate you, or something like that, when Sam says something. It's pretty fucking great. So there's finally a standoff when Vision shows up to the party and they all start to have, uh, to run at each other and the imagery of them all duking it out is truly spectacular and I just love it. Honestly, I wish I could explain all of the little elements that are going on, but I feel like it'd just be way more than it's worth, so I won't. So... Important note, Ant-Man shrinks down to get inside Iron Man's suit and he starts dismantling the, the different systems it has and making it difficult for Iron Man to basically target people and, you know, di- just the different things that are run by computers in his suit, which is pretty much everything. So what's cool is in future iterations of Iron Man's suits, he uses nanotechnology to prevent this from happening again. There, I've seen videos where they literally, they talk about every time something has happened to Iron Man where they be- he was bested in some way, he has gone back and corrected, you know, made a revision to the design of his suit to fix that potential vulnerability. Team Cap decides that they need to make one last big push to try and emerge victorious, so Ant-Man decides he's going to make himself huge, despite it being a risky procedure that he's only done once before in a lab. 
He grows to several times his size and catches War Machine in mid-flight, and Team Iron Man has to figure out what to do, and they begin attacking Ant-Man, and they're really causing some destruction at this airport, and it's coming from both sides. They did a great fucking job in this movie where they acknowledged the destruction this team had done before and decided to have this fight at an evacuated airport. And it's funny to me because Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, which I already previously mentioned, tried to do the same thing but failed miserably at it and called too much attention to what they were going for. It was basically like, oh yeah, you know, we're going to be seeing Batman, Superman, and Doomsday fight in this giant courtyard. Luckily, everybody's gone home for the day, and there are no civilians around, and it's like, okay. Natasha is in a position where she can stop Steve before him and Bucky flee, and she ultimately just lets them go. And it's like, yeah, Natasha, I'm sure your fighting skills are among the best, but you have literally no superpowers and they'd easily take you. Like, you couldn't take Bucky down when you were trying to, when he was running before. And I googled to confirm this and among her abilities, at least her, other than her fighting and and spy stuff, one of the things she had listed was she was a skilled hypnotist And I wonder why they never tried to market that in the MCU more, because it's not at all ridiculous. So Tony asks the team for some ideas, and Peter pitches the idea of using an idea from a really old movie called The Empire Strikes Back, previously covered on this podcast. So Spidey wraps up Ant-Man's legs and makes him fall over. Iron Man comes and finds Spider-Man laying very still on the ground and is worried, but he's alive, and he tells him he did a good job, but he's done fighting. So Cap attempts to flee with Bucky in a jet, and Iron Man and War Machine pursue them, but Sam comes up behind them and tries to stop them. Vision is on the ground, tending to Wanda, who he's clearly hoping to get to bang at some point, and attempts to take Sam out, but he misses and takes out War Machine, who then plummets to the Earth. Iron Man can't make it in time to prevent War Machine from landing, but... War Machine ends up surviving the fall with some severe damage taken. When Sam comes to apologize for what happened to Iron Man, or for what happened, Iron Man knocks him out with his blaster and doesn't say a fucking word to him. He's so pissed. And my not-so-hot take on this moment is that I feel like War Machine should have died when all of this happened. I think it would have made more sense for there to have been some casualty as a product of this fight that divided the heroes even more. At the hospital, where I guess Rhodey is getting a CAT scan, Vision apologizes and says he became distracted with Wanda. Tony is then talking to Natasha, and he tells her he told Ross about her letting Cap get away, and she tells Tony he's the, o- he's the one who needs to be watching his back. Tony is now on a helicopter, and girl Jarvis is briefing him on the Z- on who Zemo is and what he's been involved with. I call her girl Jarvis because I just, I, I don't remember the name of the new voice in Tony's suit now that Jarvis became Vision. 
They even said the name out loud at one point in this movie, but I guess it wasn't memorable enough and I didn't write it down. She reveals that Zemo got facial prosthesis to look like Bucky and frame Bucky for the attack at the embassy. Zemo goes to the this old top secret base where he finds the other winter soldiers frozen and ready to be deactivated. So Zemo's there looking at that. Ross meets with Tony when his helicopter lands, and Ross is not pleased with him after the big battle. So Tony walks into a cell block where the rest of Team Cap is locked down, and Hawkeye gives him a very bad time about how they're being treated like criminals and how it didn't used to be that way. Tony defends his stance by saying that they broke the law knowingly. Tony shuts down surveillance to the block to talk to Sam about what happened with Zemo and how he was not supposed to be the guy who interrogated Bucky when he was held and Bucky was activated by Zemo in this way. So Sam tells Tony that he'll tell him where Cap and Bucky went on the condition that he goes alone and as a, and as a friend. So Tony just takes off and doesn't tell Ross what's going down, of course, and he turns into Iron Man and jettisons from the helicopter, and that's a pretty cool moment. Cap and Bucky gear up and go to the base where Zemo is, and they know what he's up to, so they're on high alert. Like, they're like, he, this guy could potentially be activating a bunch of Winter Soldiers. There could already be active Winter Soldiers guarding the place or something. Iron Man surprises them by showing up at the compound and tries to tell them he's on their side in this moment, so they go to find Zemo. I love how dark this fortress of a compound is. Usually these Marvel movies are so brightly lit, and it's just cool. I, that is like one of my favorite things about DC movies is that they're fucking dark, you know? That's their... Thing. Most of them are very dark movies. So they arrive in a room with the soldiers, and it turns out that Zemo actually killed them all because he didn't want any more winter soldiers on the on the loose. Zemo reveals himself to Cap and, and talks to him a bit as Cap tries to determine his motives. He shows the surveillance footage that we've kept seeing bits and pieces of with the he shows it to the three heroes on this old monitor, which I'm not really buying, would be super easy to get to play modern video on, but what can you do? For the video, we only really know that Bucky rode up behind this car on a motorcycle and caused the car to crash, and he stole the Winter Soldier serum from the trunk. That's all we've seen thus far. But Tony recognizes the road in the footage and is getting very angry just watching it before anything has happened because he clearly knows something the audience doesn't. It's revealed that Tony's parents were driving the car and although they survived the crash, Bucky murdered them in cold blood and then took a gunshot at the surveillance camera to take it out. Now, it's important to note that Bucky was likely under his Winter Soldier mind control or whatever at the time of this incident, but Tony is pissed all the same. It's revealed that Cap knew to some degree how shit went down with the murder, but didn't really know it was Bucky who did it. But all the same, he kept it from Tony all this time, and Tony is not happy about that. So Tony goes all out fighting Steve and Bucky, and this allows Zemo to seemingly get away. 
This fight is intense, and you can tell Iron Man isn't pulling his punches at all, and Steve is pleading with him that Bucky didn't know what he was doing, but Tony doesn't really give a shit. Cap and Bucky are really fucking up Iron Man's suit in this sequence. Cap sends Bucky to fl- to flee, but Iron Man actually, he tries to fly out of this like silo with an open top, and Iron Man just closes off that silo so that he can't escape. Iron Man asks him when he gets Bucky down to ground level again if he even remembers what he did to his parents, and Bucky angrily says that he remembers all of them, and it does help knowing that Bucky was consciously aware of the things he did as the Winter Soldier, but was not physically able to break the brainwashing and stop himself from doing these things. So Iron Man puts... He puts Bucky out of commission for a bit and goes to fight Cap and he's trying to punch Cap in the the head with great vengeance and furious anger. But Bucky gets up and hits Iron Man with Cap's shield. And oh my God, this might be my favorite shot of the whole fucking movie. There is this backdrop looking through these windows where they're fighting and the three of them are really fucking going at it and it's just the perfect amount of lighting and the fighting is so fast-paced. Cap is down and Bucky uses his magical metal arm to try and take out Iron Man's arc reactor that powers his suit, but he doesn't quite get it. Cap comes back at Iron Man, and we get another amazing shot of Iron Man shooting his energy beam thing, and Cap absorbs it with his shield, and that's actually probably the coolest shot of the movie. Zemo is outside listening to an old voicemail, and Black Panther walks up and reveals that he knows Zemo did what he thought Bucky was responsible for. So Zemo explains that his family was killed in an explosion caused by the Avengers, despite feeling like he lived far enough outside of town where the fighting was happening, just that he could avoid them and keep his family safe, but that clearly didn't happen. So he hatched a scheme to pit the Avengers against each other because he says more powerful beings have attempted to beat them unsuccessfully. So Black Panther points out that Zemo is consumed with vengeance and now the Avengers are too, or, and now the, the Avengers are too, and Black Panther says he's done letting it consume him, so he's seemingly not going to kill Zemo as one might have expected. Zemo attempts to seize this vulnerable moment to pull a gun on Black Panther and shoot him, but Black Panther stops him in his tracks and points the gun away and says, the word, the world isn't done with Zemo. So this sequence switches back to Cap and Iron Man fighting, and Iron Man is about to take his kill stroke, but he doesn't do it. Cap defends himself by saying Bucky is his friend, and Iron Man says he was his friend too. Cap keeps fighting with Bucky, or keeps fighting, and Bucky helps him get Iron Man down and get his mask off. And Cap uses his shield to take out Iron Man's arc reactor. As Cap and Bucky walk away, Tony tells Cap he doesn't have any right to use that shield, and it was made by his father. So Cap leaves the shield on the floor, and him and Bucky take off. So we see Martin Freeman's character Everett Ross chastising an imprisoned Zemo for all the problems he's caused. I had to Google it to see if Martin Freeman's Everett Ross and William Hurt's Thunderbolt Ross are related in some way, despite they seemingly have different accents and 
annoyingly, I found out they are not at all related to each other. I feel like even though this is a, it's true to life, you know, people have the same last names and that happens. And it, it's just, my problem is there are an endless amount of surnames to be used before you really need to circle back to the same one again in a fictional universe. But okay, all right, I'll let it go. So Tony is with Rhodey, who is doing physical therapy while in recovery from the accident earlier caused by Vision. Rhodey takes a nasty spill while Tony is helping him walk and is frustrated, but doubles down on believing he was right for signing the agreement. Stan Lee shows up as as a FedEx driver with a package, and it's for Tony, and it's from Steve, and we hear Steve's voiceover as Tony reads the accompanying, accompanying letter. We see that the rebellious heroes are still locked up, and Cap is talking about how important the team is to him. It's it's like he he argues that essentially you could make you could make the argument that it's Cap's team and it's Iron Man's team, give, d- depending on who you talk to. Ross calls Tony, and Tony puts him on hold immediately, as he told him he would do earlier in the movie. Ross was calling to tell Tony about a breach at the facility where the heroes are imprisoned, and the movie closes out seeing Steve walk up to Sam's cell, presumably about to break them all out. Roll credits. But wait, there's more. In the mid-credits scene, Bucky is sitting with his metal arm removed in some medical facility, and Steve comes to see him. Bucky says he needs to get frozen again because he can't trust his own mind, so this is the only way. Cap looks out of these windows and T'Challa walks up and says he wants to help Bucky find peace. Cap warns him that if other bad people find Bucky, if they know he's in Wakanda, they'll come for him. T'Challa is confidently just like, bring it on, bitch. Fuck around and find out what happens. In the pa- in the post credit scene, Peter is sitting in his room, itching the spider web shooter on or the web shooter on his wrist, and his Aunt May is asking him from the other room about who beat him up. Peter says it was this guy named Steve, and suddenly the web shooter begins projecting on the ceiling, but he hides it initially. So May comes in briefly, which I am absolutely okay with, because who doesn't want to see Marissa Tomei? And when she leaves, which I was against, Peter aims the projection at the ceiling, and it's a Spider-Man logo spinning around. And the movie officially ends by saying Spider-Man will return. And I have to assume that this must have been part of the deal to get Sony to allow the use of Spider-Man in this movie. It had to be agreed. Like, essentially, it's one of the most hyped Marvel movies ever. I think only, like, the final two uh, Avengers movies were probably more hyped than this one. Okay, so anyway, praise for this movie. Honestly, so fucking much. The immense cast and all of their outstanding performances in the film, you couldn't ask for more, honestly. The story is superb. What with the whole division of these characters with the regulation of the heroes and then Zemo stirring the pot being the fly in the ointment or the monkey in the wrench, if you will. The movie has perfect cinematography and has arguably some of the greatest shots in the entire MCU to this day, 
The sense of humor is necessarily toned down as the story demands it be that way. And I love that it also, as a serious, it's like more of a serious movie than any other MCU movie to date. The movie handles its new characters' introductions well, specifically Spider-Man and Black Panther. It's very tasteful the way they do it. It provides enough screen time for them without overdoing it. And I know what you're thinking. If it came down to Wanda, Natasha, Sharon, and Aunt May, I honestly think I might go Aunt May, but they're all wonderful in their own ways. Also, I do want to mention that despite a fairly small role, Daniel Bruhl as Zemo makes for an excellent villain in this movie, especially considering he's just like a regular dude with a vendetta that clearly has his wits about him. For criticism, I guess I would say maybe it needed to be like an hour longer and it, that would be awesome. Um, no, no other real complaints. Trivia. No CGI was used during the highway chase scene when Bucky commandeers a moving motorcycle from under its rider. The whole stunt was practical. Tony Stark, played, Robert Downey, played by Robert Downey Jr., remarks how attractive Aunt May, played by Marissa Tomei, is. Downey and Tomei had a relationship in the 1990s and appeared in two other films together, Chaplin and Only You. I always find it weird when they refer to Robert Downey Jr. and they just say Downey, and I always think it's Downey Jr. And like when you hear, oh, Susan Downey is his wife. No, it's Susan Downey Jr., I'm sorry. T'Challa had a much smaller role in the earlier drafts of this movie and did not even appear in costume as the writers intended to put more focus on Spider-Man and save Black Panther's origin for his own movie. However, when it looked like Marvel would not be getting permission to use Spider-Man, Black Panther's role was beefed up significantly. By the time they did get to use Spider-Man, T'Challa had already become so integral to the plot that they decided to just leave his role as is and gave Spider-Man a smaller part, which is interesting. This movie revealed that Bucky Barnes had been hiding out in Bucharest, which is the capital of Romania. Sebastian Stan, who plays Bucky, is a Romanian-American actor who was born in Constantia... Constanta? I don't know, Romania, and raised there until he was eight. In the first scene, set in Bucharest, Bucky is buying fruits from a street market. Stan's native language is Romanian, and therefore he spoke it perfectly. The film coincides with the 75th anniversary of Captain America, the 10th anniversary of the original Civil War comic book, and the Black Panther's 50th anniversary. In the film, the Falcon utilizes a Falcon drone called Red Wing. In the mainstream Marvel comics, Red Wing was an actual Falcon, which was Sam Wilson's sidekick. Co-director Joe Russo said that the most powerful shot of the film was Steve Rogers stopping a helicopter from taking off with his bare hands, and it was fucking sweet. The shot was featured in the first teaser trailer for this movie. Russo and Chris Evans worked very hard in the gym to physically embody the character because they wanted to test the limits of Steve's physical strength. About the shot itself, he noted, on set we had Chris straining against a crane, holding the helicopter to get 
this fantastic shot of his muscles bulging, and you can feel the energy and determination as he tries to stop it. Robert Downey Jr. acted as the younger Tony Stark, along with John Slattery and Hope Davis. Lola FX provided the de-aging visual effects on the face and hair of Downey, with footage of photo- and photos of his early career as references. Spider-Man was very nearly removed from the film as Sony Pictures originally rejected Marvel's proposal to allow them a cut of the profit if they could pull Spider-Man over. Despite the disappointment over the financial returns and critical reception of The Amazing Spider-Man 2, the Sony Corporation was still planning to expand their own Spider-Man universe with a Sinister Six spin-off film. Venom from 2018 and The Spider-Man 3. Oh, sorry, those that was a list. It was Sinister Six, Venom, and Spider-Man 3 and Amazing Spider-Man 3. However, when the latter fell through after Sony parted ways with Spider-Man performer Andrew Garfield, they decided to renegotiate the deal with Marvel again. Samuel L. Jackson was surprised to discover that Nick Fury would not be in the film after the Russo brothers told him he was they told him he was actually going to be in it, apparently. I don't know what the fuck. They they told him he was. And executive producer Nate Moore stated that Fury was not included because he didn't add anything to the Civil War story that they were telling. During the airport fight scene, a truck has the Bluth family logo. It is the same stair car portable staircase for an airplane that was the subject of many running jokes on Arrested Development, the TV show that premiered in 2003. The Russo brothers, the directors of this movie, also directed the pilot of that show and many other episodes of Arrested Development. Marvel initially wanted to hire Robert Downey Jr. to reprise Tony Stark as a small role with just three weeks of work. However, Downey wanted a larger role, which would lead to a bigger payday. Marvel Entertainment CEO Ike Perlmutter Perlmutter, was furious over the request, prompting him to order the screenwriters to write Tony Stark out of the script completely. When the deal seemed like it was off the table, Marvel Studios president Kevin Feige pushed to hire Downey, citing that his casting in the film could leave the door open for sequels, new franchises, and dramatic possibilities within the MCU, as this movie could drive future storylines for those films. As a result, with Downey's casting, the actor received a substantial payout that included a back-end participation deal, and another payout if the film's box office gross exceeded Captain America the Winter Soldier, which it did. All right, on to info and ratings. So we have a runtime of 147 minutes. Um, The movie is rated PG-13 by the Motion Picture Association of America. Budget, $250 million. Opening weekend, $179.1 million. Worldwide gross, 1.2 billion. IMDb rating, 7.8. Rotten Tomato Critics Score, 90%. Rotten Tomato Audience Score, 89%. Personal rating, 5 out of 5 stars. I fucking love this one. It's really fucking good. It's It's got a lot going for it. I guess that's all I got for today. I... 
I'm going to try and see what I can do. I, I Obviously, I'm just recording the initial video right now, but I'm going to see what I can do about the different things I can do with video, and I want to see how much trouble it is. But this is just like a, a test run, basically. All right, everyone. Well, I hope you have a good rest of your day. Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews is written, recorded, produced, edited, and engineered by Brandon Griffiths. The theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz and was acquired by way of Fiverr.com.